I think what you're seeing here are how real people react in different situations to different things. Granted, in these instances, some of them have been drinking or what have you, but these are how people deal with what comes up in that moment and there's no holds barred to it. Is it always right? No. Are there consequences to their actions? Absolutely. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. All right. We are here up in the beautiful Hollywood Hills, Nichols Canyon home of Sean Rankin, the showrunner for many, many, many seasons of Basketball Wives, a show that has been on VH1 for close to 10 years and was sold actually to me by the gentleman on my left, Mr. Tom Huffman, hey. who at the time was at Shed Media, has had uh, many twists and turns in his career since then. Is that a good thing or a bad <laughs> It is a great thing. You know, still standing, still the best hair in the game. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Very true. Very says, true. The, says the gray-haired man next to the ball <laughs> And says the ball guy. Yes. Yeah. We both co-signed, so it's true. <laughs> no, but I've been fortunate enough to know both of these uh, really, really outstanding people for a very long time. Sean, back to our Buna Murray days together. It's been a long time. Tom, actually, and I met in the pitch for this show that we're here to talk about today. Yeah. No, there was uh, me, you, and Brian Robles in your office, which ended up becoming my office. Yeah, there's a so, lot of... Crazy. There's yeah. a lot of office swapping going on in this story. Yeah. And, but it is true. I mean, with the show that's gone on for now close to a decade, there have been many executive changeovers. There have been many, uh, you know, um, changeovers of Shed, the company, as far as different management and, you know, whatnot. From originally, it was a gentleman, Nick Emerson. Now it's Pam Healy. Uh, but the real constant of all this is Sean, the man, the man on the right, has been there from, from very early on. And so I think it would be a great conversation today about how do you maintain a level of consistency, you know, especially for a show like this where the talent's changing and again, all everything else is changing, but the product sort of stays the same and stays really well watched and and well regarded. Yeah, we've been super fortunate. It's like lightning in a bottle, for yeah. sure. Question. <laughs> oh man. And, and it's some other things too, besides lightning in a bottle, you know. Well, lightning outside the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Drinks being thrown, hair being pulled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but let's start this as uh, as we start all our episodes with the light bulb. And that's going to yeah. go to you, Mr. Tom Hoffman. What was your light bulb for Basketball Wives? You know, I think it was um, Shawnee and I, we worked together um, when I was over at Mark Burnett Productions. We did a show, a pilot called Love Shack. It never went through. And then I went over to Shed Media. Shed's biggest thing was Housewives New York. So for me, it was kind of like, okay, um, Housewives New York had just come out and it was kind of Shed's like biggest show besides Super Nanny. Super Nanny was obviously colossal, but Housewives New York was definitely like the sexiest show. It was very buzzworthy and it was the second iteration of the Housewives franchise. So it was right when that sort of ensemble female doc was blowing up. So naturally I was like, as the new head of development, I was like, God, how do I do a housewife show? 
um, you know, what is that? And, and that's when, you know, I started going through my Rolodex and I was like, oh my God, Shawnee, like I, I should call Shawnee. She's, she is definitely, you know, when it comes to that world, like she's got the most interesting, most compelling take. So, um, I hit her up and we started having conversations about it really with Shawnee, you know, I, I really wanted her to be the entry to this world. So I was like, I'm not going, uh, you know, into the teams and cherry picking. I was like, Shawnee, you know, this world, you're the one who has insight to the best characters. So you identify, you know, what city we should be in and what should we, we should be doing around that time. Brian Robles, uh, who is our manager of development at Shed Media, he was like, oh, I know this guy, I know Pollock. Uh, let's go take a general meeting with him at VH1. And I go into Noah's office and uh, we're sitting there and there's just Lakers gear everywhere. I'm also from Los Angeles. I'm a diehard Lakers fan. And, uh, and, and Noah said to us, he's like, listen, um, what is VH1's version of the Housewives? I remember you said that, and because that was like such a big thing, and uh, you had mentioned that VH1 had become you know popular for kind of like taking other formats and putting the VH1 wink and a nod to the whole thing. So uh, I I told you I was like, look, we're in very early stages, but um, I'm super close with Shawnee O'Neill, uh, Shaquille O'Neal's ex, oh no, wife at the time, and we're looking to do you know Housewives of the NBA. And you basically said, you were like, look, uh, could you get Kobe? And I remember that it was like, could you get Kobe's wife in, into this? <laughs> and, and that, because that's something that we would be really into if you could do NBA wives, like with the Lakers. Uh, so we tried to do that. And then we went back to Shawnee and Shawnee was like, look, you know, the, the characters just aren't there on the Lakers, like for, in terms of the, the women, like they're great. They're, they're really good. Everybody on that, that team has, has great women attached to them, but like really the, the strongest bond. Cause we were saying the best shows have relationships that have been there for a really long time. Like they're, they've been friends for 10 years. And, and Shawnee was like, you got to look down in Florida because like these women have been friends with each other. Like Evelyn's been my friend for years and she's got this friend, Jen, who's, who's been super close, um, with Evelyn for years, you know, they've always kind of stuck together. Uh, and so it was really, it, you know, um, it was really like Shawnee's it, Shawnee crafted this whole thing. And then we brought that the crazy turn of this. Sorry, I'm talking so much, but um, the crazy twist is we ended up Lisa Bahacek and I at Shed, at Shed Media went down to Miami and we shot something. Um, and again, it was it was Shawnee's design. Shawnee brought in uh, Royce Reed, who um, was kind of like the outsider of the group. She didn't really know anybody, but Shawnee knew of her. And we sh we sat down. It was it was Jen, uh, Shawnee, Evelyn. Um, it was Royce, Susie. And Susie, uh, yeah, so Jen was really good friends with Susie. Nobody else really knew her, but Jen was close friends with Susie. Or it might have been Evelyn, one of those two. And we shot something, and, we, and that's when we kind of realized, I think three of the women started crying. It was, very, it was very emotional. And they were just, they were naturals on camera. And there was this chemistry between Jen, Evelyn, Shawnee. And that was really what made the show stick, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So then we, we took that tape around um, in the pitch, always having VH1 in mind because it was Noah that like really identified, hey, I think there's something there. Um, and we got a bunch of offers on the show. Um, 
CW actually went straight to series on it. And, and I think that was kind of blinding by all of us at Shed because it was a broadcast show. And, and it was like, oh my God, they, they had the game at the time, right? Like it was a scripted show that was uh, about women connected to basketball. And uh, so, we, so we ended up doing a deal with CW. And then like, you know, we told Noah, like, oh, we're going with CW. And I, I remember like thinking, I was like, oh God, this would probably have so much more longevity on VH1. Um, and, you know, because with broadcast shows at the time, it was really, you got one shot. If the numbers weren't at that time, it was over a three, you're done. Uh, and they ended up, I think they took it. We, we tried to do something with the Lakers and, and we, we developed it for a little bit at CW. CW passed um, two months in. They were like, what are we doing? Uh, and, and then I immediately called Noah and, and was like, hey, man. Uh, this thing came back to us and Noah already had another basketball wives from Steve Michaels. <laughs> yeah. So let me fill in there. Actually it was my colleague, Sean Boyle had the basketball wives, yeah. uh, I believe with the Houston wives with, uh, with Steve and also Jenny Daly was involved in that. And, you know, I thought, okay, Tom, you might be a day late and dollar short here, but let me see what I can do. Cause we hadn't picked it up yet. It was, it was in the development space and, I went to Sean, I went to Jeff Old, uh, you know, we had a conversation about it. So listen, hey, this might be coming back and, you know, Sean O'Neill and down in Florida and, you know, remember that whole project. And Jeff Old was very much, well, let the best project win, right? We haven't picked that one up yet. But our lawyers made sure that, that you know, the T group and the asylum people were okay with that because, you know, you don't want any weirdness. You obviously don't want to get sued, all that kind of stuff. And uh, to Steve and Jonathan's credit, they said, listen, we're competitive. And if our show's the best show, it'll win. And if it's not, it won't win. So it's fine. And so, you know, big, uh, you know, big congratulations to those guys for, for not shying away from it. Yeah. Ultimately, it didn't shake their direction. So that kind of sucks. Maybe they should have been a little greedier, but, uh, but they weren't. And, you know, it wound up happening. Let me back up for a second, though. Um, you know, to put a little bit of the network context on it here. I remember when you came in the room and that conversation, I remember the couch you were sitting on, everything. And at the time we had very much, or we very much had housewife envy, right? I mean, and to your point about the VH1 twist, right? Flavor yeah. of Love was the big show at VH1 at the time, which was obviously The Bachelor. And, you know, even the surreal, you know, surreal life was the real world. And, you know, all these kinds of things that were, it was this, but it's that. And when you said that, you pitched a bunch of things that I don't think were right. And it was very much one of those, well, what else you got? And yeah. that was the one you came with. And I'm really glad I asked that question. And, um, you know, we had just lost out pretty recently on what became the Real Housewives of Atlanta, uh, which I believe is a third Housewives franchise. Yeah, yeah. And that was a pitch that True Entertainment had taken around. Great cast, not a Real Housewives show yet. And we made an offer. Bravo made a much better offer. It said, we'll go to series, we'll call us The Real Housewives. And so we lost. And Alex Demnyenko, uh, who plays very much into this story, obviously, uh, you know, said, we got to find a way to crack that housewives thing. And especially, you know, the urban housewives, African-American housewives. And so when you said basketball wives, I mean, it was just like, ah, you know, clouds parted. Let's let's do this. Um, so sorry, just give a little context there. But yes, yeah. yeah, so I'll, now I'll be the one who talks too much. But <laughs> you delivered that tape. And the thing I remember about it was, you know, we had like two minutes to finish it all. And you shot it, I believe, the week before yeah. our offsite. And you rushed it. And I remember I was away with my wife at a wedding in Arizona. And it was the first time we had ever been away from our very young daughter at the time. And 
you know, everyone's at the pool having a good time, day of the wedding, and I'm up in the fucking hotel room turning around notes on, you know, on your cut. Uh, but, you know, but I did it with a smile, missed out on probably a couple margaritas, but we turned it around, flew straight to New York for that offsite with, you know, and you sent it away and voila, the rest is history. Yeah. So, so we pick up the show. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, pick up the show. I remember we had in that tape, by the way, there was like eight. Sean, did you ever see the original? I did, yeah. There was like eight different cast members in there, and we ended up settling on the the five that would become season one of, of Basketball Wives. And by the way, the, the name of Basketball Wives, it was originally NBA Wives, which we couldn't clear. We actually did contact the NBA, <laughs> who at the time, it was David Stern, but his number two was Adam Silver. So we literally called Adam Silver, and he was like, no, I don't, I can't do this. I so, wonder why you felt that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I remember the, the, the day that the, it was green light, it was Jeff Old uh, at VH1 that was like, let's just call it Basketball Wives. And we were all like, oh, that sounds so boring. But then it just it just totally stuck and said what the show was. Um, so after that, it was really like, who could we get uh, to show run this um, now that it was going into production? And and that's where Sean came in. It was actually Noah you that, that suggested Sean. Uh, we had suggested a couple of the people and we did an extensive, you know, interviews and I think it was, yeah, we, we all like Sean blew us away and, and it was, it's not really a dramatic story because it was just like, I easily, it was him that, that had to run this and steer this. Um, but I will say, you know, credit to, uh, not to Sean, but Seth Lawrence, Sean's agent. Oh, and yeah, I think right. this is a great yeah. example of really, really strong agenting because he was like a dog with a bone and I had known Sean for many years uh, from having worked together, you know, probably what, five years previously at that point. But when Seth suggested Sean, he, it wasn't one of those, oh, here's 50 clients you should look at. And, you know, you get these lists and they're just not thought through. They're not curated. It was one name. I mean, Seth completely keyed in on Sean. He said, it has to be Sean. And, you know, we had to vet and obviously meet other people and make sure everyone was happy. But, Man, oh man, he he just was relentless about it and just said, no, the, like, wh- why are you meeting with anyone else? It has to be Sean. And he ultimately was right. And that's why I was so glad to hear that you're still working with him all these years later. Yeah, and here we are 14 years later. He is a fantastic agent and has always been in my corner. So I definitely do appreciate him. No yeah. question. No question. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, Sean, let's, let's pivot over to you here. What was your first you know, uh, mention of the show, what did you first hear about it? You know, did you gravitate towards it immediately? I mean, what, what, you know, do you think we'd be here now all these years later talking about it? You know, I didn't know we'd be here this long, you know, we're super fortunate to be here this long, but my first glimpse of the show is twofold that I can really remember would be the call that I had with shed and sort of this whole round table conference call that we had, uh, one night in New York City with like six people on the line <laughs> asking all kinds of crazy questions. How do you deal with large groups of women that may or may not get along? Um, <laughs> just some of these rapid fire questions. And uh, Nick Emerson with that thick accent. So how do you deal with crazy women? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, then having the conversations with you about, you know, what this potential project was and what your expectations were. And it was something that, you know, right out of the gate, just the ability to tell stories about some lifestyle that everyone wants to know about had never really seen was what was most attractive to it. You know, to sort of be able to step into that high glitz glamour world 
and be able to really sort of dissect it and see it for warts and all was really what was most intriguing about it. And the characters, as Tom was explaining earlier, were so compelling. And the idea that you were telling stories about people that weren't just thrown together in this hodgepodge scenario, they had backstory. They had an intricate sort of woven tapestry together that was something that could feed story to begin with. You weren't coming up with something from scratch. And that was what was most intriguing to me about it. You know, there was there was a lot there from the get go. And granted, when we started season one, we got to Miami, we all sat down and we just looked at each other like, OK, what is this? You know? <laughs> so knowing at that point, because the show was only a half hour the first season. So we're like, OK, what exactly is this? How are we going to do it? What's the approach? And these were early days of DocuSoap. So you weren't thinking like, you know, OK, well, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about beats and this is how it's going to go. It was more okay, let's plug it in and see where it goes. What are your stories? And so we really followed it sort of a real world-esque kind of way where we just sort of, okay, ladies, we're just going to follow you, see what happens. And the first couple days, it was just story popping out of the gate. And it was just, it was an amazing process that we were able to really tap into some of the great folks that Tom and Shawnee were able to really pull together that were open books from day one. Yeah, well, and to your point about the half hour, I mean, if I remember correctly, you know, going back to those times, like as much as this was obviously, a, you know, an important show for the channel and okay, it's our way into the housewives, this, that, the other. I don't think there were a lot of people internally that were betting on it as being like the big show, right? It was half hour and the way things were programmed back then was, you know, you had a nine o'clock show that would probably be an hour, a 10 for a half hour and then a 1030 for a half hour. And if memory serves, this was the 1030 show. This was the, we're going to have not just one, but two lead-ins because it's not driving, you know, it's not driving the ratings for the night. That very quickly changed as just out of the gate. I can't even remember what those other two shows were. I'm sure they're long. One was Lala, right? Was it Lala was the... It's possible. Yeah. It's possible, but... I think she might have come season two. Season two, you're right. But, yeah. you know, but it's, it's way far in the, in the rear view here. And that show to be a half hour, you know, you're off in Florida with some supervision, but not a ton. And, you know, it's not like it's got this very direct format of what we know it's going to happen next Thursday, or you know what episode four is going to look like. And man, you guys just blew the gates off. Yeah, I still remember it was April 11th, 2011. And I was, it premiered, I thought it was like 930 or something like that. or ten. Yeah, it was late. And I just remember being terrified. I was like, I, I was sitting with my girlfriend at the time at her place. We tuned it on to watch it. And the original idea that, you know, Shawnee had talked to me was like, you know, Shawnee, I remember going to a Lakers game with Shawnee and she was like royalty. I was up in a box and I just texted her. I was like, I'm at the game. And she was down here and she came up to our box with uh, her own security and then took me down to the Royal Room at the Staples Center. And I was just like, oh my God, this is crazy. And, and our... The way that Shawnee positioned it was like, this is entourage, you know, for, it's the female version of entourage. Um, and, and that's what we kind of ran into. And then just as every show goes, it morphs into something different now, something completely different. And so I, you know, I, I was mainly in the development stage and then Alex and Sean and the rest of the team were, were in the production stage. But I just remember being like, oh my God, like, this is it. Like this has morphed into something else. What are people going to, is this going to resonate? And I was so stressed out. But at the end of the day, when we were watching, I was like, this is so cool that this show is, because it's really hard to sell a show. And like this, so great that people are watching this and commenting. Because that was the big thing was social media. Like that, it was one of the first shows. I think we even got some award from it. <laughs> like, it was one of the first like social media heavy shows that the community really got behind. Oh God, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that one. I mean, 
whenever you know, I started following everyone on Twitter and all that kind of stuff that people weren't really all doing at the time. You know, I think what maybe Ashton Kutcher was the first to a million, right? Right, and but you you start to see just all the women on our show and their their followings, and here are women who, let's be honest, they were chosen and they were known. The show was called Basketball Wives. They were known for being the spouse or the girlfriend of someone else. And one thing that I think is really fascinating that we should talk about is how it's morphed into something totally different. And they all now are their own people. And for a show that maybe on the surface doesn't seem very empowering, I think has really become incredibly empowering to where now all these women have spinoffs and their own careers and their own companies and, uh, you know, have left their men in the rear view in many cases. I mean, did you see that naturally happening? I mean, what was, you know, kind of what was the thesis that you were trying to produce towards on day one and the thing you were trying to unearth? Well, I think from the get-go, the idea was to really show sort of what this world was, the challenges, the benefits of it, you know, the beauty, but also the warts of it. There's a lot that goes into living this lifestyle. When you're dealing with these you know, ups and downs of like the careers and the men and the kids. And there's a lot that goes on behind the curtain that people really weren't aware of. These people have real lives. It's not just what happens on the court or what you see in Us Weekly or in People Magazine. And so we were really fortunate to get that sort of curtain pulled back to be able to see sort of the struggles with the relationships and how the women help to support each other and what it's like to have a man who's on the road or your relationship that's sort of unfolding in the public eye and things are going awry or going well. Um, so we were fortunate for these women that were really living out loud and showing us exactly what it was. There were no veneers. There were no, you know, pretenses about things. This is what it was. And so we saw how that was really going on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's what the audience really sort of connected with was that these women were showing their lives for everything that they were, whether it was good, your man was cheating on you, you're going through a divorce, you know, you have issues with your kids, you know, you don't get along with your girlfriend because so-and-so said something else. Like all those things really were sort of played out in the forefront and there was no, there was no sort of hiding behind anything. And I think that's really what you know, our audience specifically really did connect with. And I think that's why, you know, so talking about the, the social media aspect of it, we were trending worldwide every episode airing and people were talking about sort of a running commentary. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating to see sort of how people connected with these moments. And I think that's really what fed the women too to continue to really sort of show everything because they knew at some point they were helping somebody by being vulnerable, by showing, you know, how things were good, bad, or ugly. When did you realize, uh, Sean, that you were, and Tom, but, you know, Sean being there, boots on the ground, you know, in Florida, that you were a part of something maybe much bigger than just a one-off season or, you know, a show that would be forgotten? I mean, when did you see a big change going season one to season two? I mean, when did it start to really, really take off as far as the way these women were perceived and just culturally? Well, going back to the end of season one, I have to say, Mark Saliga, who's my partner in crime on this whole thing from beginning to now, um, he and I sat down and we had this place that we'd go <laughs> every week called The Tides on, on uh, Ocean Drive. And we'd sit down and have a martini and just like sort of discuss what was going on and how the week was progressing. And at the end of the season, we sat there and we were having a drink and we're like, you know what? This has been really amazing. Let's see where it goes. And then as Tom was saying, when it was airing, you're like, you're seeing it. You're like, okay, this is going to go somewhere. It's happening. It's happening. And when you guys called and said, season two, but let's bump it up to hours. And by the way, we want 12 or 14. So let's see where it goes. We knew then that we had done something right and that these women had done something right. More more importantly, that Shawnee had pulled together a team that 
was just right. And so when you guys had asked for more, something just said that like, this is not going to be the end of this. And sure enough, you know, subsequent seasons, the order got bigger. We were there longer. I think season three, you guys were like, well, hey, why don't you guys just stay there? I know you're doing 12 now, but let's just see what 16 or 18 looks like. And we're like, can we go home? You're like, nope, just keep going. Just keep going because there, there was a hunger for it. And I think that was, that was rewarding because you're in these moments with these people. That's the crazy thing that I don't think people really understand when they watch a show at home. You're living these lives with these people. You're seeing it happen every day. So the emotional sort of roller coaster that these people are on, oddly enough, you're on it with them. And so by the end of like week 14, 16, you're like, I need to either talk to my therapist or go on a vacation, one of the two. And that's, I think that's the one thing that, you know, is good and bad about a show like this is that it is taxing but rewarding at the same time you know you're telling stories that can help people you're telling stories that entertain people but at the same time i don't think america understands the work that goes into it both on the cast side and the production side well and then you did something very interesting which was you got an la spinoff greenlit just so you could come home (laughs) there you go but they were going at the same time so we were flying back and forth so mark and i would split the shows and i would fly back and get one started he would wrap up the other and then we'd switch places well, as I alluded to earlier, with uh, you know all the switching of executives, I mean, obviously switching of cast members, that's a whole you know conveyor belt. But you know, Alex Demonenko, who I mentioned earlier, was head of development at VH1 when we bought the show. Yep. He then went with the show over to Shed and was a very, very consequential part of launching it. Uh, Tom, you sold the show to me in the meeting that we mentioned earlier, yeah. and then when I left VH1, you came over and became an executive. Yeah, it was it was kind of a crazy trade off there. Uh, now, Alex, I he was really our secret weapon because you had this kind of mole in the production camp because you had this guy <laughs> that was at VH1 that knew the brand that was behind some of the biggest shows at VH1, and all of a sudden. You know, we just got so lucky that a guy like that who understood everything, the audience, all the little, you know, um, quirks of the audience, he was able to come over to our camp and work with Sean and be like, this is what we need. This is the type of color we need in this. This is the type of emotion. And and so that was amazing. At the same time, well, no, about uh, nine months after, um, I took Noah's job. <laughs> Noah left. He got a bigger job. And then I, I went over to VH1. And that was uh, it, that. That was a pretty for this. Uh, obviously, I oversaw um, this uh, project and the LA iteration of it. Uh, and the only thing, I mean, it was still great. And I knew the cast. I was able to call Shawnee on a personal level, and Shawnee is. Uh, I mean, she's an amazing executive producer. Like she really does. She's not just a cast member. She's able to kind of look above everything and be so much farther than down the storyline than anybody else and be like, okay, this needs to make it happen. And she's, you know, her and Sean are probably the best with all the all the women in terms of like... I'll say Mark is great with them too. And Mark, sorry, sorry, Mark. Yeah, yeah Mark You're, is the whisperer for sure. No yeah, question. and you need these sort of whispers. And, and so to have a guy like myself that was texting with them on, on, on season one, being like, guys, uh, uh, we need you to uh, come down here uh, for the sizzle reel. We got to do... And now I'm in the network. I think in some way it was more comforting to them that they knew this network, you know, like they, they knew who VH1 was. Uh, for me, it was a lot of text with the cast members and, and you know, maybe not the respect <laughs> because it was like, you know, it's just Tom, you know, but, uh, 
but it was an interesting dynamic. Uh, and again, I think it, it, it was all part of the secret sauce of the show that like everybody was so closely together. Even when you were there, the fact that you were in that room when, you know, everything was like, oh, we should do this. Like the, it was a very tight knit group that really cared about the project that you don't usually have. I mean, it, it's, it's always there, but this was kind of unique to the normal situation. Would you have felt comfortable taking any executive job? Or do you think because you knew this show so specifically, it sort of felt like the transition would be a little easier coming from the production side? I mean, I loved my job at Shed Media. Um, I, I loved it. I was there when it was Ricochet. And Nick Emerson, you know, was such a great boss. He, he did this thing where every Friday morning we would golf together. And that was like his way of, of getting the updates for me and everything like that. And so we had this, this great connection. There was some stuff going on at Shed. It was a transitional time. So, um, so Nick was leaving and, and, and then this opportunity opened up. And it was just like the easiest decision for me because VH1, I was so close with Jeff Old. Um, I knew like half the team over there really well. I felt like I had a really good handle on the brand. So uh, I saw it as just the most exciting move at the time. I was like, this is so cool that I get to go over to VH1, which, which has been a brand that I've always followed and have always you know, loved all the shows. And it's one of those, those few brands that they have an identity. You know, there's a lot of networks out there that are just like kind of, you know, they're a life, general lifestyle network. There's few, you know, you have your Bravo where, you know, you're going to turn on this channel and this is what you're going to get. And this is going to be the look of it. And VH1 was another one of those networks that had this like great identity to it. So one, I, I would argue that this show is a great part of creating that identity. Certainly, oh, yeah. you know, kind of it, it's sort of this decade's version of what VH1 is. Um, now, I guess a little bit of the dark side, though, is. This show is also very well known for all the fights. And, you know, that's a plus and a minus, right? Because it's dramatic and it really, you know, it, it gets your attention. But it's also, I don't know, it's fighting, right? And how do you how do you keep it fresh? How do you sort of get the fights to have more sort of meaning behind them so that it's not just somebody throwing water at each other, but that there's actually you know, some substance behind what they're arguing about. I mean, here you are now in season, what is it, season 12? Yeah. Right, so you're not a broken record, I guess would be the question. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there is the idea that the show does have a number of fights. And I think a lot of the docuseries do because you're dealing with people and their real emotions and the scenarios that they're put in. And so that does come up. People have different reactions to things. And they handle things differently based on their upbringing or their social background or what have you. So I think what you're seeing here, and it's an edited version, but what you're seeing here are how real people react in different situations to different things. Granted, in these instances, some of them have been drinking or what have you, but these are how people deal with what comes up in that moment and there's no holds barred to it. Is it always right? No. Are there consequences to their actions? Absolutely. And I think that we've been really good about showing that there are consequences to those actions. Um, you know, there, there have been times over the course of the series where we've had a sponsor or two pull out and we've had, you know, notes from the network about like, you can't show this, you can't show that, you need to make sure that you button stuff up. And I've always had someone that we, I think we all know, Dr. Laura Kukorian in the back of my head, who, you know, always reminded me in the very beginning of my career that if you open a wound, you have to close it. You know, and I think that's from our storytelling perspective. If you see them getting into an altercation, you have to see a resolution to it. And I think that's super important for us to be able to do. So you either see them dealing with that person on a one-to-one -one level where they either apologize or talk the situation through, or they go to therapy and they deal with it. Or they have some sort of come-to-Jesus moment where they discuss what happened and that's sort of, so it's 
thought through and you can see that there was a process to it, how it happened, why it happened, and where they go from there. So we don't just have gratuitous fighting for the sake of gratuitous fighting. But yeah, there have been a couple drinks thrown, a couple weaves pulled. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in taking that approach, and that's a great line from Dr. Laura, do you is that sort of your whole methodology in in producing these women? And because to hear to be here now 12 seasons in for a show that's cast dependent you know where yes there's some changeover some people come in come some people come out but these cast members have power you know they're not just like people coming right off the turnip truck who need television at this point i mean what what and again you're in some you know not not so much anymore cuz it's you know shot mostly in LA now but you know at times thousands of miles away or other sides of the world and the network you know it's how do you sort of keep it all together how do you keep a clear message and how do you you know how do you coach them you know i think it's it has a lot to do with the team um each person sort of on the team has people that they bond with you know i think that what we do have the benefit of having spent so much time with each other is that you know you form legitimate relationships with people and so you have an understanding of who they are and how they operate and sort of what makes them tick on a day to day so you can really tap into those things and i think you know mark and myself and our field team, our producers really have those relationships where you can talk through things with people, whether it be an interview, whether it be before a scene, and really get to the crux of the matter with them and figure out where things are going to go, how it's going to go down, all those kind of things. Um, and I think that's really sort of what, as Tom would say, our special sauce is, is that there are legitimate connections that really help keep this machine running. And, and Shawnee is a big part of that, you know, having the ear of the women and really sort of knowing them on that personal level really helps to keep everything greased and and moving forward and you know as we talked about earlier it's really about these women having these moments that are real you can see them coming down the pipe and you see how they interact with each other in real time so the audience gets why it goes where it goes and a lot of them are you know either team this or team that when they see something go down because somebody identifies with you know person a someone interviews or uh, interviews or not interviews but uh identifies that's there the is. word we want because <laughs> I'm being interviewed um, <laughs> identifies with person B and they really connect in that way so I think for us it's really about telling both sides of the story building it up to where the crescendo is and then again telling the stories as they you know go back their separate ways I mean how long can this go right I mean obviously as long as VH1 will have you but outside of that I mean the ratings are still massive you know, as as important as each one of these women, you know, is to the story, there are a lot of them and people come in, people come out. I mean, does Basketball Wives as a franchise become like a sports franchise where the people change, but the, you know, you root for the sort of the overall, you know, name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back. Could it be on the air 10 years from now? I mean, from your lips to God's ears, you know, <laughs> hope. but I mean, look, I think there's a lot that goes on with these women on the day to day. We were talking before we started about, you know, we've had over 20 cast members in sort of both iterations of, of the show, whether it be L.A. or or uh, Miami. And so you have your constants that have been there and you sort of see the people that really, again, live out loud. And those are the people that the audience connects with and wants to see, like they're counting down to the, the season premieres or shows because they want to know what's going on in Evelyn's life. What's going on in Shawnee's life? Are Jen and Evelyn friends again? Those kind of things. When your audience buys into it like that and they're waiting with bated breath for something to happen, that's where you get the, the privilege of being on the air for a long period of time. Do you need infusions of new blood in your story? Absolutely. Will the women get tired of, of being public figures at some point? Maybe. But I think as long as they're willing to 
be part of the process and own you know their existence the way that they do that we're so fortunate for we could be around as long as vh1 wants us now tom you mentioned that when you watched this show it wasn't exactly what you had originally intended but it was still amazing <laughs> yeah but in your heart of hearts i mean i feel like and it's probably some revisionist history here but when you pitched that show to me and my response was something like yes we would want that <laughs> Um, there's only a few moments in my career that I can point to where I had that feeling of, yes, I will get this show picked up. We will make it and it will be a hit. I mean, do you, do you think, you know, when you're pitching it, you know, have you had that feeling other times? I mean, or do you think it's just now in success that we're, you know, changing our, changing our tune? Yeah, I've, I've, I've had, I mean, that was kind of, um, the there's there's been a, especially being at Mark Burnett like not being the guy responsible for them but seeing shows where I I knew in development I was like oh this one like this is going to be big you know like uh, one of the last ones I was there for Burnett was Shark Tank which that's another one that people don't realize it was back in 2007 or eight that 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 was originally pitched to ABC so like that one when we were putting that together and Kevin O'Leary came on and like the, all the pieces were together. Um, Clay and Brian did the pilot. That, that's another one where I was like, oh, this one is, it's going to be big. And it took a bit, but like, you were just like, oh, it has all the right materials. So you can, I think you can identify one. This basketball, I was just, when we were developing, especially when we went back down to Miami the second time to do the bigger tape, it really checked all the boxes. Like it, we had these, uh, in the tape, we divided the tape up where we had all, all the women. And there was like eight in that tape talk about four of the biggest themes of the show that we were going to hit. And and it was very easy for them to talk about. So there was like, you could tell that there was real substance there. And then also the other thing was there was this wish fulfillment aspect of it um, where they were all beautiful and they were all fashionable. And that's another big aspect of the show that maybe we're just three guys here, but like that, like people were, it really changed fashion. Like people were wearing Evelyn's hoop earrings and like they were, you know, so it had something extra to it. And then really it was, it was the, for me, it was just the characters. Like we had every single one of the girls in, in that show, they were characters. Like there was nobody fly. And you know, I mean, we've all developed unscripted shows and you know, when you're like kind of reaching <laughs> and you're like, ah, this guy's really good, but oh, these four characters, uh, this one will, he'll, we'll put it on his shoulders. I, uh, you know, th this one was every single character was solid and, and they had, a very identifiable story and direction to it. I mean, it was just, it, it was one that was just kind of all came in together. And, and yeah, there's been, there's been other ones, but that one was definitely like, it had the full package. I mean, you've gone on to sell and develop and produce tons of shows since this one. Uh, you know, when you sold this one, it was a log line. It was a relationship with Shawnee. Yeah. Right. CW and then VH1, we paid if I'm remembering correctly, for all of your development materials, you might have had to go out of pocket a bit, but it was you weren't taking a heavy financial risk in putting this project together. Would that be the case today? If you were trying to sell basketball wives today, what do you think the process would be? Would you have to have even more boxes checked? Yeah, you know, it would be... Um, yeah, because the original tape was... Uh, was Lisa Bohacek down in Evelyn's store, Dolce, and, and it was just like... Dulce. Dulce. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it was Dulce. And it, and it was, it was just, uh, it was just, you know, talking to camera. And, and I, I think nowadays, nowadays you would have to have the second tape where we had scene work and we had, it was broken down into themes, but they weren't like, 
title cards. We just, we kind of did it, you know, where you didn't really know, but you were getting a list of all the themes because they were telling these great anecdotes. Um, and, and I think that is what you would need to actually sell the show. Um, now it's, it's like you need, yeah, you have to break down who each character is and then also show them work cohesively. And, and like, this is what the dynamic is going to be. And that requires money. I mean, that tape, we, we probably spent like 50 grand on that. I think you guys gave us like 50 or something and, and we used every bit of it. We had to travel to Miami and we had to do, <laughs> and I, Matt Shanfield and I were just talking about this last night. He's like, you know, we used to, when we were at Shed, Matt and I flew to Arkansas and, uh, with just our camera and it was just me and Matt and we were filming cast and then we were out pitching it to Spike, you know, and, and now you can't really do that. You need, uh, you need like a Sean Rank. you need like these, you need producers. It has to have production value. It's got to like prove that this could be a show. So gone are the days where it's just you send like a like me out there and <laughs> just pick it up. But you do have that beautiful hair. I do. Yeah, the hair gets me far. <laughs> it's getting gray now. Well, there's one question I've been asking everyone uh, who's done these, and that is advice to younger self. A lot of people that have listened to the podcast are assistants, uh, coordinators, managers, you know, younger producers coming up because I think this is really a how-to for them to hear about how to do their jobs, right, and to do it successfully. And so with that preamble, I guess the question would be, Sean, uh, what would your advice be to your younger self, to your 25-year-old self? Um, you know, you're, what, 27, 28 now, so you have a little bit of distance from that. But, you know, what are you seeing in, in younger people that you maybe didn't see in yourself? And, and, yeah, what would you say to young Sean? Younger Sean. Wow. Um, well, I didn't start in TV until I was 27. So, oh. Yeah, I would. I actually started as a PA at Buna Murray at 27. Yeah. Which, I mean, thanks Lisa Bohacek, full circle, oh, crazy. who actually hired me with Jeff Kearns. She was the HR director at the time. And she and Jeff pulled my resume off the facts. That's how old we are. Um, and hired me. Yeah. So okay. I was, well, so, okay. What was 22 to 27 then? And what, what created the desire to switch? And to be a PA at 27, I'm sure there was some humble pie there. Oh, please. I'll be in humble pie because that's all I could afford at the time. But um, I was an event coordinator for the Fiesta Bowl. And I was also uh, a manager and a corporate trainer for uh, Gordon British Brewing Company back in the day. Um, so I came out here to actually manage a Gordon Biersch and I was working with somebody who actually happened to have been the girlfriend of somebody on the real world season two, um, Dominic's girlfriend at the time. And she was my, my general manager at the, or AGM at the restaurant and she was quitting. I was like, I hate this job because restaurant work sucks. And she was like, you should work in TV. So I was like, Oh, I like the real world. Oh, let's, let's see, figure that out. So I just found the fax number. Wrote a little little mail, um, little uh, cover letter that said, you know, my job sucks. I hate it. My boss is a jerk. I got to get out of here. I'll get you coffee, pizza, bagels, whatever. Just give me a job. Lisa and Jeff thought it was funny and I had a job three days later. Yeah, so I was the uh, in-house runner for uh, Real World Hawaii. Not very glamorous because it was in Van Nuys. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first job. Um, so from then to now, I mean, I think... The climate in TV has definitely changed in terms of sort of like the the uh, the training, and I think what we were very fortunate, especially at Peter Murray, was that you know we learned from the best in the game, and they were very good about you know teaching and molding and just really showing you from the ground up how it works. And I think that's one thing that you know I'll always be thankful to Mary Allison John for is that they made specific changes and moves for you based on what you wanted to do, and so. You know, because of that, my philosophy, you know, thinking for these sort of younger people coming up in the business now is to learn 
everything. Don't think that you're going to be, you know, PA on Friday and EP, you know, the following Monday. That's not how it works. You need to do every job on that call sheet to understand how this really works. You know, it's, it's about climbing a ladder so that when you look down, you can tell the people behind you how to navigate their way up. So I think it's really about paying attention and doing as many things within a production that you can so that if you want to be a leader in this industry, that you can tell somebody that's coming up behind you the right way to do it and be confident about it because you yourself have done it. It sort of eliminates that hypocrisy of like, do as I say, not as I do, because I've already walked in your shoes. Um, I think that's really what's most important with the guys that are coming up now, the guys and girls that are coming up now, is that don't skip steps. Take that journey and enjoy it. Figure stuff out because you never know. It's somewhere on that journey, you may decide to make a left instead of a right. You know, you see people that sort of go through that, you know, coordinator phase and like, well, maybe I want to go to the production side or maybe I want to go to the crew side. And they sort of make that branch off there. You only know that if you basically took the steps to figure that out. So don't negate things just because you want to be in some sort of what you can see, you conceive as a powerful position because it's not. It's not necessarily that because it won't necessarily be the same experience if you haven't had the other piece of the puzzle put together for you first. So I would just say enjoy the ride for what it's worth. Take all the steps that are necessary and figure out the best path for you once you're most educated on it. That's all. What about you, Tom? Um, 25-year-old Tom. 25-year-old Tom. I I was 26 with Basswives. That... I think for me too, I, you know, I, I went to SC cinema school. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to work in movies. I wanted to be a studio exec. And I remember I got the, I got a job as an assistant uh, to Roy Bank at Mark Burnett Productions. And I always saw that as like, I need this to survive. Cause I, you know, my parents cut me off two months after I graduated <laughs> and, and I, I was looking for a job. And like Sean just said, I was like, oh, you know, I need to be a producer. I need to be doing this. And and I, I, it just came out of a necessity. I needed to survive. So I took this, I took a job as the assistant to, to Roy over at Mark Burnett. And I think, you know, I always try to make things, simplify things as much as I can, like take it to a granular level and look at it. And the reason why I wanted to be in entertainment was because I, I wanted to be creative. You know, my parents worked in medicine and, and I didn't want a serious job like that. I, <laughs> I, I wanted, I liked coming up with ideas and being creative. And I think, you know, I would tell people like it's it's you can be you can get the same value from working in movies from working in scripted TV that you can get in commercials and unscripted TV and and to really like stick to it and and go for it because I I have gotten so much value working in the unscripted community the night uh, Basketball Wives um, aired was one of the greatest nights of my life I was I was like oh my god you know I was stressed out but I was like I can't believe other people are watching this this is something that Shawnee and I talked about. And then we put it together and then now other people are consuming this and they're finding enjoyment out of this. This is the coolest thing ever, you know? So I, I, I would say that too. It's like, realize, don't get ever, don't get discouraged if you're in, if you're, you think you're in the wrong place. It's really like, no, you're, why are you even in entertainment in the first place? Because you want to be creative. You want like, you know, to make something. And then, uh, God, I guess the, the other thing is it's whenever you think, I, I, I would say the, Trust your instincts because, um, you know, like I, I think Basswise probably would have been made, wouldn't have been made at, or, you know, at some other places that I worked at. Um, and if you think that you have a great idea, just go for it. Like, don't let somebody tell you it's a bad idea. Just go for it. Um, and, you know, Mark Burnett was I was in a meeting with him and he told me he's like, you know, I probably would have been successful. Uh, he was really young when he 
when he got into this business and he's like, I don't think had I gone back now and pitched Survivor, I don't think it would have worked because I was almost like kind of too junior to know that what I was doing wasn't really the right thing to do. (laughs) But because of that, people admired what I was doing, you know, so he's like, I probably would have overthought everything and this thing wouldn't have happened. And once you have that idea, the last step is just try to be really surgical about it. Once you think you have a good idea, go deeper and, and just think, okay, this is a great idea. Now, how do I make this idea better? Never get lazy at when you come up with something and you're like, oh, this could be something. Dissect, dissect it and just say, how do I make this even better? How do I make it go better, better, better? So um, that, I guess that's like the three things. Yeah. Three really good things. Yeah. Well, you guys made this show really, really a lot better. Thanks. Uh, you know, maybe a lot better than people ever realized. And again, super successful. Sean, I, I saw you jotting down some notes before. How many episodes, how many hours of uh, content? At the end of this season, we will have 182 episodes of Basketball Lives between Jesus. the two. Uh, actually, 182 hours of Basketball Lives between the two franchises. Yeah. That's a lot of appearance. That is a lot of yeah. appearance. <laughs> yep. That is true. A lot of catchphrases. A lot of extensions, a lot of hair changes, a lot of, just a lot along the way. So a lot going on. I wonder if you were to take all the girls' weaves and wigs and whatnot and put them end to end, how far around the world that would actually It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll save that math problem for another day. <laughs> Thank you guys both very yeah. much. Yeah. Pleasure. Beautiful pleasure. There you have it. The true story of Basketball Wives. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you to my guests, Sean Rankin and Tom Huffman, and to my wonderful family for all their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.